Welcome to today's show. We have Anurada here, who's going to tell us about her journey and a little bit about herself, where she's at, and what it's taken to get her there. So thank you very much, Anurada, for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Zoe. So to start, let's just go back a little bit. And if you can tell the listeners where you're from, where you moved to, what your journey was like, why you chose that destination, or if you had more than one along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I do want to name that uh, my family immigrated from South India to the U.S. in the 70s during the so-called brain drain. Okay. Um, They were at the at the age to come to the US and then they studied computer science and became programmers uh, with Honeywell and IBM. So I grew up, I was raised and born and grew up in mostly Arizona mm-hmm. of the US. And and we spent a few years in California as well in when they worked at the Santa Teresa labs there in San Jose. Okay. So I grew up there and actually I had a chance to visit India as a as a teen a couple times as well. And so that was good. I don't think I had planned to leave the country. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I went to India by myself and the George W. Bush Jr. W. was in the White House. And yeah, so there was a lot of negative being U.S. person abroad. That was mm-hmm. a big deal. So actually, I went to New Mexico. So, you know, as I as I after I graduated high school, I went to did my studies and I became a teacher in the state of New Mexico. And after I finished my master's work, I put teaching on hold and I wanted to do a PhD. And one of the programs I looked at was here in the UK. And when I came over, so there was four programs I looked at. This is the one I had decided on. And I got my student visa and came over. And it was, the plan was to do my degree. It was instead of a traditional PhD in the US, which could take five to seven years, this was meant to, you should be able to finish between three and five years. If you're a full-time okay. student, you could finish it in three years. So I was thinking, okay, I'll stay in the UK. And as a student, I could work up to 20 hours a week. So I found a job as a supply teacher because I had done, and then that's substitute teacher for people who might not know. So I got a position doing that, which supposedly in London, they needed a lot of teachers. So Mm-hmm. I was thinking that could cover my costs. And I started at the University of Surrey in Guildford. So that's just south of London in the Surrey in, uh, area. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's what brought me here. I found it really different than grad school life in the U.S., very different than teacher life in the U.S., in my opinion. So how was it different? How did how did you feel it was different? Yeah, there was so many things. So I taught in a low income school district, Los Lunas High School, mm-hmm. outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. That was the longest teaching place I had taught. To give you an idea of the situation, I didn't have a classroom. I had a cart and there was a couple of us who had, were in that situation. They just didn't have enough classrooms. So we would roam from classroom to classroom during other teachers' prep periods. We could use their classroom to teach. So it was kind of an overflow situation. Wow. Um, a lot of the other teachers had cherry picked the better, the better student, quote unquote, better student. So it was a very different situation. A lot of people thought I was the students. It's a high 
so a low socioeconomic status, a fairly high group of Hispanic students. So mm-hmm. I looked brown to them. So the assumption was, oh, I would be a native Spanish speaker. And I was like, no, my, my people <laughs> came from a different part of the world. So that was the interesting piece. So, you know, so basically I had a lot of freedom in mm-hmm. those years when I taught at Del Norte High School and um, Las Lunas High School, because these are the students that were high degree of special Led mm-hmm. and perhaps English language learners and so on. So they weren't getting a lot of attention. They're not used to having the kind of time and attention put on them. So, so contrast that where mm-hmm. I had, so I had a lot of freedom to work with them and I really improved their skills here. It was different. It was varied. One time I did worked at a nursery and then another time I would be working. I think the longest stint I had was at all girls school in Ealing. Okay, um, which is North or West London. So that was interesting. I've never taught in an all girls school. I think a couple of the classes, the younger students were the middle schoolers, I want to say seventh or eighth mm-hmm. grade were very interested, but I wasn't teaching chemistry, biology and science. I was teaching whatever subjects they were giving me. So that was very okay. different perspective. And I would say I wasn't used to working in an inner city school like that. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't used to working in an environment where we had uniforms and uh, all of this. There was a lot more freedom for dress in the mm-hmm. U.S., even as a teacher. Right. We would have casual Fridays. That's not a cultural thing here. <laughs> <laughs> casual Fridays does not exist in the U.K. No, I don't think so. It's not. Not, not in the schools anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, at least at the time, That's maybe it. it's mm-hmm. changed. But yeah, so that it was very different in the U.S. It seems to be like there was supposed to be a lot of, quote unquote, school spirit. So you're wearing school colors. There's fun dress up days like, mm-hmm. you know, wear your pajamas to school day or whatever. You know, you have days like that um, spirit week. I didn't feel like that sense going on there. Maybe there was and I just wasn't there long enough. You know, mm-hmm. I am a supply teacher. So coming in for a couple of days here and there is not the same as right. to know the students for a long period of time. Right. So I found it different. I also felt like the attitude was instead of where I was mentored in my teaching, I had kind of higher level teachers coming in and checking on me and guiding me through things. And I was in a teacher training for a couple of years before that. Here, the attitude was just go do what we're asking. And I'm like, I don't even know on what I should be grading this project. Well, here you go. Here's here's the grading key, just go. And it was a little bit, I found it very different, but mm-hmm. it was good. I, I did connect with some of the students and I think I gave I I must have given my email address because I did hear from a couple of them later just asking questions or whatever because we got into an interesting chat about the cosmetics industry in one of the environmental chemistry, Mm -hmm. chemistry, I don't know what it was, but some (laughs) sort of sciencey class. Right. And so how was that transition? So you went to be a student. So you went over with student visa. And decided to stay? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually didn't finish my PhD because international tuition is incredibly high. Mm-hmm. Tuition in general for university here is very high and international fees were higher. I ended up not doing my PhD at Surrey, but I instead got a one-year foundation certificate in fashion design. I found it really fascinating. So I did that instead. And I have, I've seriously learned a lot of things. My bachelor's is in biology and I was a researcher for a while in a lab. I've done so many different things, an mm-hmm. editor, teacher, um, and so, so on. So from that student visa, 
how then what did you get after that a temporary visa to permanent or sorry temporary residency or permanent residency or or what did you get and how did that process work that's a good question. It's a funny story, really. Um, so basically what happened was I met my partner, mm-hmm. now partner, but that wasn't that wasn't the thing. I was thinking, okay, I'll I'll get this visa, I'll need to leave. And so I thought, okay, I'll take the Eurostar, do some sightseeing across Europe. I did do a few excursions and then I was going to go back home. And at some point I was going to run out of cash because I wasn't getting enough through Supply Teaching London's a fairly expensive place. So what I ended up doing was I was thinking of that. And then my, at the time partner, we decided to kind of make it more serious. We actually moved to New Zealand. Okay. That was uh, where they were looking for teachers. And I said, okay, I'm interested. And I was a science teacher, which was one of their high need subjects. And so we went over there. Neither of us got, I think he might've gotten one interview. I got zero interviews. So we ended up getting married over there because that's the only way our governments could recognize that we could stay together. So we got married on this predator-free island, Adele Island in the National Abel Tasman National Park was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then we came back to the UK after all of this, after seeing uh, family and so on in the US. And yeah, so I came on a visitor's visa at that point because my student visa was not there. Expired. Um, mm-hmm. Expired. I was pregnant. So I had the visa extended for um, with a note from the from your doctor did you get a note yeah, from, the from midwife, the doctor? yeah from mm-hmm. yeah exactly so we got the visa extended so I went back after my child was born I took her back with me so you and, didn't have your child in the UK yeah she she was born here oh she, she was, was born in the UK okay that's right that's right so we had had the visa, visitor's visa extended because of medical circumstances okay because I would have been right after the t- cutoff for when you should be able to fly. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, that was a very interesting situation. And then I went there for about three months and that's where we, I got my visa status changed to definite leave to remain. So I came back on that visa. Mm-hmm. What are the first step is? It's usually a, a temporary, temporary residency. Okay. That's that, that must be what it was. Mm-hmm. So I got that. And then basically since it was a fairly straightforward case, I handled all the paperwork. It took about five years to go through from definite leave to remain to indefinite leave to remain to citizenship. So Mm -hmm. about five years I took, and then I finally became a citizen. And, you know, I can't say I'm, I wasn't thrilled to pay any allegiance to a queen that is part of the reason our country was colonized by, you know, from India and so on. Like, you know, I had feelings about that, but I wanted the three of us to be able to stay together. Mm-hmm. And that's not possible for us pretty much anywhere in the world. Uh, my daughter and I can stay together easily, but without my citizenship, then I can't stay in the same place my husband can. And he can't work where if I could live in the US, he couldn't work there. I mean, we're just running into problems. Right, right. And is he a UK citizen, like born and raised in the UK? That's right. Yeah, he is. Okay. And so do you, have you kept your dual citizenship or did you renounce your US citizenship? For the time being, I've maintained both. And okay. so has my child. Um, we might, my parents still live in the US. Mm-hmm. So there are reasons to keep it alive for the moment. Right. Well, even with a UK, um, a UK passport, you can still visit uh, the United States quite easily. Mm-hmm. Um, just for, for tax purposes and things like that. Not everybody does, but some people do decide to renounce their U.S. 
citizenship because they get taxed on their worldwide income if you're a, a U.S. citizen. So some people don't like that. I can understand. And <laughs> I'm sure you can. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just why I was I was curious about that. So from beginning of your temporary residency until your citizenship took you, you said about five years. Mm-hmm. And that's that's generally pretty quick. And I'm assuming that's because you were married and had had a baby. And so that probably made it a bit quicker because I think most times it's usually closer to the seven to 10 year mark. If, okay. if okay. say I just wanted to go, then I have mm. to have temporary for so long, permanent for so long. Mm. And then they, they, they make it long. They want to make sure people are going to, going to stay. So that's great that, that you have that now. And did you find that there was any major kind of cultural differences. I mean, I know you lived in a few places in the United States. You stayed briefly in New Zealand and then went back and, and settled in, in the UK. Was there any type of adjustments with that? Or are they all fairly similar things to deal with and kind of same advantages and disadvantages? So vast and we don't have all day. So I'll try to summarize <laughs> to the salient points of what's on my mind. Yeah, I think Every place has its own beauty, its own people. Um, I found one of the bigger cultural differences between the U.S. and here is this culture of, uh, so where you're being silly or smiling a lot in the U.S., like Mm -hmm. if you do that here, I think people see you as probably vapid American and not in a good way. I think there is an attitude of that. There's a lot more closed off culture. I, I have found it particularly difficult and, and I'm in a number of other U.S. folks that live in the U.K. types of groups. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's a culture of maybe not as accepting and so on. My in-laws, my partner has two, like both parents split up and okay. remarried. So mm-hmm. all of my in-laws are white. And I will say there's a racial component of we, we don't have the level of conversation we have outside of a U.S. context. And that that's global. We're mm-hmm. not bringing social justice issues in the same way. So if we're talking about transphobia, homophobia, uh, racism, it is higher, even though it's not in a great state in some ways with the level of intolerance mm-hmm. and justice, it's worse. And we didn't, we're just not even able to have those kinds of discussions. I mean, look at how Meghan Markle was treated, just the, the incessant bullying from mm-hmm. the media. So that, that kind of attitude is, I will say it's there. And I was surprised to see it quite a bit in New Zealand too. So as much as it was a beautiful country mm-hmm. to visit, Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure that's why I didn't get an interview. So I want to be honest about that. I've talked to a number of other people of color who've lived abroad. And that's a thing we have to kind of protect ourselves against. It's a reality that we're not seen in the same way. Right. And it's it's a difficult challenge everywhere in the world. But I think it's it's definitely in the public in the United States. It's It's very in your face type thing that everybody's aware that there's a a lot of issues in the US with that. And I think, I don't know if it's just more, more people talk about it. It's more in the public, the population is more. um, And so we hear about it more or it's just um, because I'm from Canada. So I still hear a lot of news from the US. So I, I wasn't sure if I just thought maybe I just hear it more because I still on my phone and stuff have news and things that pop up and it's North American based because I still have family ties and everything 
based there. And it, it definitely is a problem around the world, but I didn't realize it was just as bad or worse in, in the UK, mm-hmm. but I don't really follow much that goes on in the UK. So that's interesting to know. Yeah. I think as a, as a thing, the US, in the US, we have a pretty sizable people of color. So the indigenous, the black people, you know, Asian and all the other ethnic minorities make up a, a pretty big uh, base mm-hmm. in the UK we don't have that number of people of color they call them BAME over here black Asian minority ethnic that's the term that's used okay. for whatever reason okay just for clarity but we don't have the same percentage so we're we're looking mm-hmm. at less than 10 percent I would say not more than 10 to 12 percent of all people of color, not even that high. And that's mostly in urban areas. And you'll see that. But in the US, you're you're starting with a 13% black, the black people population. That's maybe not the most elegant way I just said that sentence, but you know. The the number, the numbers of people are substantially more. So we hear more about it. That's right. And, and they're more vocal about it. That's correct. There's yeah. Exactly. And they have more voting power. So, mm-hmm. And how do you find within the UK, is there a, a, a large expat community there that has events, does things together, or is it maybe a bit of a smaller, a smaller community or like do, do expats kind of spend more time together? I know because when I lived in Spain, for example, um, there's a very large expat community in Spain. Spain um, Barcelona is very international and there was always events going on and organizations hosting events and things for expats that are living there, whether it's fully residents, temporary resident citizen, or just visitors that are there for their three months or student visa for a year. And there was always stuff going on in Barcelona for non, I don't want to say non-Spanish people, but there was mostly targeted for non-Spanish groups. But of course, some of the the Spanish could join at at any time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've I've not noticed a whole lot. I've been to maybe two or three in the last few years. I mean, when I was a new parent, there wasn't really time. So it's maybe only in the last, and then we've been in pandemic life for two, three years. So, you know, the, in the middle time, maybe I remember Mm. going to two or three meetups. One, actually I went to New Mexico tech. So New Mexico Institute of mining and technology. So uh, that's where I got my bachelor's in biology. They had a, they had enough of a interest of expats who graduated alumni meetup here. So that was kind of fun to, to, to meet. Um, nobody was from my graduating class or anything but yeah there was a few people here so that was kind of cool and there's been a couple other meetups but I don't Mm -hmm. think they're as frequent and so on so okay yeah and and as you said though being busy with a new baby and then of course with the pandemic nobody could do anything hopefully that will be completely over with and we're done with that and have no more issues with the pandemic but so if somebody was kind of on the fence they they're thinking about moving abroad they're not sure you know they're they're nervous about it some of their family saying don't do it like what if you know all the the what if bad things that people always say what piece of advice uh, would you give somebody who's kind of on the fence of if if they should move to another country anywhere in the world yeah that's a good question i i feel like there's so many circumstances and i also know i'm a little bit of an outlier in some cases in that I'm not that super close to my family abroad Mm -hmm. and so on. So Mm -hmm. to me, that wasn't a a real issue. 
Okay. So that might be there, but I do miss a lot of friends and I miss the land for sure. I miss the Sonoran desert where I grew up. I miss that land so much um, and the mountains. So, you know, think about those things. Can you live without those things? I remember when I stayed in India there for a long time, I got to missing bagels. I, you miss the weirdest <laughs> things, right? So can you live without those? And I remember my dance teacher at the time was saying, oh, I can give you idli or dosa. And I was like, oh, you pick. I really want a bagel. I'm not going to get a bagel. So I'll let you pick. So, you know, so can you live without those kinds of things? Not just the heart's homesickness. Maybe some people will feel that or missing certain people or relationships. Mm -hmm. I've only gotten to see my family two or three times in the last few years because of pandemic and all the other circumstances going on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's like you're missing gaps of people's lives or so on. So I guess the piece of advice I would have is, can you see it? Can you go live there or be there for a time to test it out? Like, see what your routine would be like, because I see almost every day in these Facebook and other spaces where people want to come to the UK and they want to ask, hey, where should I live? What's it like here? What should I pack? And I think all the advice we can give is maybe not going to be enough because whatever I packed or whatever I thought was important didn't turn out to be the most important thing. <laughs> right. And, and what's the most important for you may not be the most important for me, right? You say, oh, make sure you have this and this. And, and I do. And then I think, oh, why didn't I bring that? Or I wished I would have had this instead, or this area of the city. Really? You like it? Oh, I, I don't. Like some people like newer, some people like older and it's more charming. Some people, you know, everybody likes something different. And that is, I find one of the problems mm -hmm. with asking in, in, in a Facebook group, unless you can be very specific of, does this area have lots of parks, trees? What is the best area for uh, being walking distance to a mall or whatever it is that a person needs? Because we all like something different. And, and what, what I think is is ideal for me, maybe the complete opposite for you. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And for us living in London without a car makes sense. We can, I, I have been car free since I moved here. I thought I would just do it six months and mm -hmm. I can live like that. It's, it's more inconvenient and more rural places in the UK, but we managed, I can unschool my child here. So we, um, so it's, it's uh, home education. I was a teacher, so I feel comfortable doing that. There's provisions for that in this country. Um, okay. Although the legislation is changing around that, um, just so people are aware. So it depends. Um, I can be an online business owner here. So it means I can travel if, if needed and still have the right to work here, mm -hmm. which you'll need if you want to do that. Right. So those are all things that I think are pluses for my perspective. Right. And, and I, I agree. It's, it really comes down to a, a number of questions uh, of, of what, what somebody wants and what's negotiable and non-negotiables for them. Mm -hmm. so, exactly. That's right. So overall for you, what is the best thing that you like about living in the UK? I think I, my favorite thing is my family, mm -hmm. but what I decided a long time ago, despite there's times I still feel homesickness and talking about this is certainly <laughs> a thing. <laughs> Makes you want to plan a trip back home just for a little visit, just a little yeah, visit. Possibly. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Um, yeah. But I decided a few years ago 
that my family is where my home is. So the three mm-hmm. of us is my home and wherever they are. So I love that we can be together. And I really love that we live near green space and we can, my partner has a disability. We have the support. We have some support we need to make that a thing. So, you know, I feel like that's better, a better situation than I could have in the U.S. Mm-hmm. in in a similar circumstance. So I enjoy and appreciate that. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time. And thank you for sharing your experience and your story with our listeners. And hopefully that'll give them a little bit of food for thought for their own situation and to think about what's most important for them to decide what's going to be the best for them and, and to help make that decision. Yeah, absolutely. If you come to the UK, look me up. <laughs> Perfect. Will do. Thank you. Thank you.